If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Jeremiah, which means what? The Lord exalts. Does this mean the Lord exalts everyone, whether they serve him or whether they're his enemies? No, it means he exalts those who love him and keep his commandments. And he puts down those who are his enemies. Last week we looked at Jeremiah chapter 6 verses 22 and 23 is where we ended where the Lord says there's a great army coming out of the north. And it's a dual fulfillment prophecy. It's Babylon coming for the Babylonian captivity but it's also Gog and Magog coming in the day of the Lord. Both are in mind here as the Lord speaks. Verse 23, it says, They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. How does the Bible describe the battle of Gog and Magog? It's like sandstorms that just cover the horizon. So in verse 24 and verse 25, this is Jeremiah speaking. He describes his reactions to the prophecy. So verses 22 and 23, the Lord says judgment is coming. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be such destruction. In verse 24, on behalf of the people, Jeremiah says, we, that's the people. We have heard the report of it. We've heard it's coming. Our hands grow feeble, meaning what? Scared to death. Not strong hands on swords, but feeble hands. What do we do? We can't stop this invasion that was true of Babylon that's going to be true of Gog and Magog in the Psalm 83 war the Israeli defense forces defeat the nations that come when Gog and Magog come it is such a huge army that all they can do is turn to the Lord in fear which they should have done earlier anguish has taken hold of us what's anguish is that oh something may be wrong that means severely torn up, right? Severely distressed. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a what? As of a woman in labor. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the tribulation period is described as what? Like birth pains, like the pains of a woman in labor. Give me one verse in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 24. Let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, all these are the beginning of verse 8. Matthew 24, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That's the Greek word odin. It means birth pains. And of course, verses 5, 6, and 7 are the first four seals of the tribulation period. And these are the beginning of the birth pains. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're just studying Thessalonians now, aren't we? Not quite done. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So is Jeremiah talking not just historical, but also about the day of the Lord and the pains in the tribulation period? You bet he is. Pain is of a woman in labor. Verse 25, do not go out into the field. Why? Because they'll kill you. The enemy's coming. 
Keep a finger here. Go back to Matthew 24 again. Why did I tell you to keep a finger there? Because I didn't think of it. Matthew 24. Verse 15. Therefore when you see the abomination desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house to take anything out of the house. Why? Because we had got to run. There's not time. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. The army is coming so fast. It's too late to start preparing. It's time to go to action. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. Uh-oh, that means they're going to be under siege. So what do we do? That's Jeremiah, verse 26. O daughter of my people. What are the daughters of Jerusalem? The unwalled villages. Bethlehem, Bethphage, Bethany. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll in ashes. Why would we do that? It means what? Mourning in repentance. So the message of the prophet is the army's coming. How about repenting now? Because if the people were to repent and truly turn to God with their whole hearts, what would happen to that army? Toast. It would be toast. You're absolutely right. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll in ashes, make mourning. As for an only son. As for an only son? Is that Zechariah 12.10? You were thinking which? Exodus, death of the firstborn. Let's go look at Zechariah 12.10. Because in the day of the Lord, in the tribulation period, will the children of Israel come to salvation? Will they repent and turn to God? They will. Zechariah 12.10 says what? Let me give you a chance to get there. Oops, I got a question or comment out there. Please slow down. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. And what comes after that? Me and Olive Tom. Mm -hmm. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So put that verse with Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 26. In the day of the Lord, when the battle of Gog and Magog is coming, and the armies are like the sand of the desert. There's so many, so overwhelming, so strong. What will the children of Israel do? They will repent, they will turn to God, and they will cry out for his defense. What happens when he does that? Look at Zechariah 14, verse 3. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. 
Who destroys the invading armies of Gog and Magog in the Golan? God does. Israeli defense forces don't. The United States military doesn't. God does it himself. But wait a minute, Wayne. If God never personally intervened in the Old Testament, why would he do that in the New Testament? Oh, he did. When Hezekiah prayed, what happened to Sennacherib's army? God destroyed 185,000 himself that night. And then what did Sennacherib do? He tucked tail and ran and his children killed him at the foot of his pagan altar. So yes, God has done it before and God will do it again. Does that not get you excited? Let's finish verse 26 of Jeremiah 6. I didn't get all the way through the verse. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. That's a sign of repentance. Deep, serious repentance. If you remember in the book of Jonah, when Jonah preached at Nineveh, even the king of Nineveh did what? Put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. This is true repentance. When Israel will finally realize that Yeshua is and always was the Messiah. And they cried out for him to be crucified. Keep a finger here. Go to Acts chapter 2. It happened on a small scale in part in Acts chapter 2. But in the day of the Lord it will happen in full strength. As Romans 11.26 says, And all Israel shall be saved. But in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost if you prefer. And Peter is preaching and says what? Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God has made this Yeshua whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, what? Repent. And let everyone be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the first word out of his mouth was repent that's the voice of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6.26 crying out to the people repent repent it says make mourning as for an only son most bitter lamentation for the plunder will come upon us suddenly dual fulfillment but two different results in the days of Jeremiah when Babylon came did the people repent no. They turned their backs to God. And they listened to the false prophets. And they said, we'll do what we want to do. We're not repenting. You can't take our sins from us. We like them. In the day of the Lord, it's going to be different. The people are going to listen and they're going to repent and they're going to cry and they're going to mourn and they're going to weep and God is going to personally intervene. What if the people in Jeremiah's day had repented like that? Then Babylon would have been stopped, right? The children of Israel would have remained in the land. 
But they said, no, we will not do it. So this is still Jeremiah, verses 24 to 26. Jeremiah responding on what the people should do if they want to avert this great tragedy. And in verse 27, God turns to Jeremiah. He's heard Jeremiah. And God's going to speak to him personally. He says, I have set you as an assayer in a fortress among my people. What does an assayer do? Assays. <laughs> Assays. Can you be any more specific? He evaluates. He evaluates. And in the days of the gold rush, he determines the purity. And that's exactly it. Determine, are the people repenting or aren't they? Are they turning to me or not? Do they want me or don't they want me? And you're a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. Why did Israel wander for 40 years in the wilderness? Is it because they got lost? God lost his compass. Because of unbelief. Be more specific. Says God was testing them. To see whether they would follow him or not. Jeremiah has been set up as the test. Jeremiah is going to preach repentance. Will the people repent or won't they? Will they listen to his words? Or will they listen to the words of the false prophet? The scripture tells us all of God's prophets preach what? Repentance. Really? Not who's going to win the next presidential election? No, it's repentance that they preach. Verse 20 says, they are all stubborn rebels. What does that mean, a stubborn rebel? Stiff-necked, Stiff won't change their way, won't hear the call to repent, won't give up their sin. Walking as slanderers, they are bronze and iron. Bronze and iron were the hardest metals back then. Bronze also indicates what? Judgment. The judgment's coming on them, but they're going to be like iron. They're going to resist everything God does to try and call them to repentance before they have to be destroyed. But they're all corruptors. Do corruptors make things better? No. What are you and I supposed to do the more we see the day approaching? Repent. Live uprightly. That's 2 Peter chapter 3. But also let's go to Hebrews. Don't forsake the assembling. Episunagogen. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 24 and 25. In fact, we're going to start in verse 23 because it leads right into 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Is that to encourage one another to sin or to repent and draw closer to God? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Episunagoge. Do not depart from the synagogue. But exhorting one another. Pleading with one another. To get right with the Lord. To be ready. He's coming. He's coming. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
Is the day approaching? Oh, it's approaching. It's approaching rapidly. So should we be gathering together, encouraging each other, saying, get ready, make sure that your bags are packed, you're ready to go? It may be an old song, but it's still true. Except my wife says, I ain't packing no bags because I can't take them anyway. But I know what she means. But let's be ready. Verse 26 says, for, what does for mean? Because if we, if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and firing the nation which will devour the adversaries. We may all unintentionally sin on occasion, have to beg forgiveness from the Lord. But can we just turn away from God and willfully walk in sin and say, I don't care, God will save me anyway? But that's what the people did in the days of Jeremiah. I'm not repenting. I'm going to enjoy my sin while I can. And God won't do a thing about it. How'd that work out for them? Not so much. So back to Jeremiah 6. Here's another chant. I wonder if it says slow down some more. Yep, that's true, Margo. But still, i got to slow down sometimes, and I don't mind people telling me I need to slow down a little. Have you noticed I get excited? Yeah. You didn't notice that, did you? Could I make a point there? Got a question, Brother Wayne. Yeah, Go ahead. In Acts 2, 36-38, when it says they were baptizing in the name of Yeshua, yeah. do we know what they were baptizing in the name of before Yeshua? You're talking about the un, un the non-messianic Jews. What were they baptizing in the name of? They weren't baptizing in the name of anything. It's just a baptism of repentance. Okay. Which is just a baptism of repentance. Which all the prophets okay, thank preached. You. Which all the prophets preached. Yep. Again, can I bring? Yeah, go ahead. I wanted to bring a, a point because I keep hearing people say we don't have to follow Moses' law. Right. Just the stuff in the New Testament. Hebrews ten twenty-eight says. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. Yep. So we well, no, we don't have to do yep. that. But if two people testify against us, we die. Oh, well, wait a minute. Yep. What people misunderstand is if you open the New Testament and read Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, the Lord says, Till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or mark will pass away from the Torah. Either he's a liar and not the Messiah, or not a letter or a piece of a letter of passed from the Torah till heaven and earth pass away, and it hasn't yet. But even later, in you know, people say, well, that was before the crucifixion and everything changed. Paul changed everything. But Paul is most likely writing here in Hebrews, and he's saying, look, if, if you died because you transgressed Moses' law, which said you die if you do this, yep. and two people see you do it, you die. Yep. If, if that's the case, what is your escape plan when you willfully break God's law? Yep. And in Acts 24, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, I believe everything written in the Torah and the yeah. prophets. And in 2 Timothy yeah. 3, 16 and 17, Paul said, every word that comes out of the mouth of God is good for what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Yeah. 
but there are people who don't want to hear that. But they, you kind of close your eyes to simple verses like this and those you just quoted. Yeah. You've got to look the other way every time you come across that in yeah. order to keep believing a lie. And it appears so many times. Does our faith not make the law void? No, just read Romans 3.31. It doesn't. Isn't the law bad? No. Paul says the law is good and just and true. Etc., etc. But I'm preaching to the choir. Let's just go back to Jeremiah 6. Verse 29. The bellows blow fiercely. What's that mean? If you're going to purify silver, you need a bellows to get the fire really hot. And remember in verse 27, I'll make you as an assayer. Assayer judges the quality of the metal. Does it need to be heated again? Or is it pure enough? So the bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. Do you know what that means? Well, about 600 degrees, but there's more to it than that. Lead evaporates at a certain temperature. Yeah, when you purify silver, you add lead to it, and the lead joins together with the impurities so they can be removed from the silver. That's a way they purify and refine the silver and make it better. The smelter, sorry, somebody said something. The smelter. Smelter is one who, what? Refines metals, put metals through the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. In other words, as God has brought judgment upon the children of Israel to refine them, they have rejected the lessons. They've refused to repent. They're not letting the dross be cleaned off and the silver refined. They want to keep the dirt, the filth, in, them, in themselves. Look at Zechariah chapter 13. In Zechariah 13, they use the very same analogy of silver being refined. Zechariah is just before Matthew. Zechariah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's the way it goes. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Then Matthew. Go to Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 to 9. Verses 7 to 9. Start 2,000 years ago and end about seven years from now. About, can't say exactly. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. That's Messiah's crucifixion. Against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. What did Messiah tell the disciples? You're going to be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Israel has been facing God's judgment for the last 2,000 years since Messiah was rejected and crucified. First thing, it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. So in the seven-year tribulation period, two-thirds of the children of Israel will perish. One-third will come through. Why do the two-thirds perish? Because they refuse to repent. Verse 9, I'll bring the one-third through the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined. He puts silver through the fire seven times. 
How many years in the tribulation period? Seven years. And those years are called what? Times, times, half a time. Seven times Israel will go through the fire to refine them, to bring them to repentance. And test them as gold is tested. That's what Jeremiah is being told in Jeremiah 6, is you be the tester. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. What verse in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, does that make you think of? Let's look at Jeremiah 31, 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 is the beginning of the recitation of the new covenant, but verse 34 tells us the time that this is completed. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. These are the ones who came through the fire, refined, turned to God with their whole heart, their whole soul. They love him with all their heart. They're obedient to him because they love him. They are the embodiment of the new covenant. That's what it's all about. Go back to Jeremiah 6. Verse 30, people will call them rejected silver. Talking about those of Jeremiah's day who refused to repent. That's like calling them low on me, not my people. Does God later again call them my people? Yes, but what happens in between? They repent. But in Jeremiah's day, they don't repent. Remember, they've had two opportunities to go in the Babylonian captivity voluntarily, and they've refused. God commanded them to go, and they refused. And this last third remain in the city, saying, God won't let it happen. These false prophets tell us peace and safety. Everything's going to be fine. So why should we repent and give up our fun? Isn't sin fun? Wait till judgment day and you'll find out how fun it wasn't. So verse 30 goes on. Because the Lord has rejected them. Go to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. Y'all remember Hosea chapter 4. My people perish for what? Lack of knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of the Torah. Hosea chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So he went and took Gomer, not the Marine, that was a much later TV show, the daughter of Dabliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Wait a minute. Isn't there a valley in Israel called the Jezreel Valley? Where Armageddon takes place. Jezreel means what? The Lord will sow. Will sow what? Grapes of wrath. Grapes of wrath. That's right. Wrath and judgment. 
For a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel and the house of Jehu, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day. Is it just an Old Testament prophecy? No. Thou will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That happens at Armageddon. Mm. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, which means what? No mercy. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. What could they possibly have done for God to call them Lo-Ruhamah, no mercy? They became married to Baal, God's betrothed, turned away from him and grabs onto an idol they call Baal, Baal, which means husband. Do they repent and turn back to God? No matter what God does, they don't repent and turn back to God. So this is the northern kingdom of Israel. What happened to them? They went into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BCE. And when did they come out? They haven't yet. No mercy. For so yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Will save them by the Lord their God. And will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Meaning they will not win the battle through their military might, but God's going to have to intervene on their behalf. Now she had weaned, although Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. Let me back up to verse 7 for a minute. This is where, after taking the northern kingdom captive, 20 years or so later they went after the southern kingdom of Judah had taken every city in the southern kingdom of Judah except Jerusalem and it was under siege when Hezekiah repented and God came down and defeated the Assyrians. How? Personally, by himself. That's what he means in verse 7. God will save them, not by their bow or sword or battle. God did it. It's after that that they still turn back to the pagan idols and rebel against God. That's when in verse 9, then God said, Call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Why? Why would he do this? Because they turned their backs on him. They cut creches into his temple and put idols in the house of the Lord. They come into the courtyards and bow with their backsides, their buttocks to the Lord, and bow to the rising sun to worship the sun god. He said, I'm done with them. They've had every opportunity. They saw the northern kingdom go into captivity. They saw the Lord our God deliver them personally from the Assyrians under Sennacherib. And yet they still turn back to the pagan idols. For you are not my people, I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or number, which means, but Israel will not be cut off entirely. Despite what they have done to the Lord, he will not cast them off entirely. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. What came between, Lo, on me, not my people, and you are my people, the sons of the living God? Repentance. Repentance. 
Verse 11, then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. That tells us when this all takes place. When do Judah and Israel come back together as one people? It's in Ezekiel 37, when the Lord returns and establishes the kingdom. And appoint for themselves one head. Who is that? That's our Messiah Yeshua, King of Kings. And they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Mm -hmm. That day of Jezreel is the battle of Armageddon. Now, how can God say in Isaiah that we can know he's God because only he can tell us the end from the beginning? Couldn't everybody 2,700 years ago have told us exactly how it's going to work out? Of course not. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 6 and see more of what God had to say because it's some pretty cool stuff. But we're up to chapter 7. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. See how Lord dispelled. There's the tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav hey. By the way, there is no W in Hebrew. But I did figure out where the W comes from. I keep saying Y-H-W-H comes from Arabic. Arabic has a W instead of a V. Okay, I, I digress. The word saying in verse 1, what does the word saying mean? It's a quote, it's from the lips of God, and he says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say. What's the first word the prophet is supposed to say? Here. That's not a suggestion, it's a command. Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Are there still people coming in to worship the Lord? Yeah. They just stop in the valley coming up and sacrifice a child first. They come up with blood on their hands. They come up unrepentant. And they think, well, God's going to have to bless us because we came to his courts. That's what Isaiah 5 is all about. Stop coming to my courts before you... Repent. Repent and then come. So hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. What does that word worship mean? It means to bow down before the Lord. To bow down before the Lord means you're supposed to be humbling yourself before the Lord. So if you bow down before the Lord and say, but don't you tell me what to do because, well, you're not the boss of me. Are you being inconsistent? Might even say hypocritical. Yeah. So get ready for verse 3. What does every prophet of God preach? Repentance. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts. Is that a veiled threat? No, that's no threat. The word host is the same word as armies. It's referring to the Lord who leads the armies of heaven to destroy anything and everything that stands against God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways. What's that mean, amend your ways? It means repent. Stop living like hypocrites. Another way to describe the hypocrites, those who come to God for his blessing while ignoring his commandments and doing the opposite 
is to call them lukewarm. They want to be able to have God's blessing without repentance, live in their sin, and have God accept them. Is there anything in the New Testament that says you can continue to live in sin and God will accept you anyway? Not a thing. Amend your ways in your doings and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So not only is it a threat, but there's the carrot. If you will repent, God says, I will cause you to dwell in this place. What is this place? Jerusalem. You don't want to go into captivity? You don't have to. All you have to do is repent. You don't want to be destroyed, slain by the sword. I get it. All you've got to do is repent. And that word amend, amend your ways, do you think that's a suggestion? No, that is a commandment. So repent and you can stay in Judah, you can stay in Jerusalem. The temple would stand forever. Oh, look at verse 4. Do not trust in these lying words. Do these lying words refer to the prophet Jeremiah? No, but to the false prophet. There's only one Jeremiah, but how many false prophets are there? Many, many. Bokus. Yeah. So verse 4, do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. The false prophets are saying, this is the temple of the Lord. No enemy could destroy it. It's not possible for the enemy to destroy it. So no harm is going to come to Jerusalem. No harm is going to come to this temple. They say peace and safety. In 1 Thessalonians, what does it say when they say peace and safety? Then comes sudden destruction. What's the scripture say in Ecclesiastes? What's happened before will happen again. Same song, second verse. So verses 5 to 7 are the same message as verse 3. So verse 5 says, For if you thoroughly amend, what's that word thoroughly? Can't we just throw God a bone and keep a commandment or two? If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then, oh, look at that, if then, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. What is that? Min ha-olam, vad ha-olam. We sing a song like that, huh? means it will never, ever end. If they would have just repented and bowed their hearts and knees before the Lord. They didn't have to go into the Babylonian captivity. They didn't have to go into 2,000 years of Roman diaspora. 
They didn't have to be slaughtered from country to country for the last 2,000 years plus. So it was repent or judgment, and they chose judgment. Is that not what we read in Revelation chapter 16, the tribulation period, the judgments from God are falling, they know it's from God, and they refuse to repent? You know, why it troubles me that so many people think they can just stay in the middle. Yeah, that's what you call lukewarm, isn't it? Yeah. I'm a good person. Only the scripture says, take none of us good. So we really have to ask, is the Bible the word of God or not? Because it says in no uncertain terms that if we will not keep the commandments of the Lord our God, we have forsaken him. We have forgotten him. We have turned our backs on him. Is it the word of God or isn't it? He talks in verse 6 about the widows, the orphans, etc. Let's go to James chapter 1. We'll see that God's interest in protecting the widows and the orphans has never changed. Shouldn't surprise us, God does not change. James chapter 1. Right there about Peter, huh? Pretty close together. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What's that mean, unspotted? To be separate from the world. To be tamim, without spot or blemish. Which means to be walking in obedience before the Lord our God. But isn't this in James chapter 1 verse 27 the first time God tells us we should look after widows and orphans? Let's go back to Exodus 22. Exodus 22. Exodus 22 verse 20. We'll go through 24 because we're going to get that verse 22 you mentioned. Exodus chapter 22, starting in verse 20. Let me give a minute for everybody to catch up. Exodus 22, beginning verse 20, it says, He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. So, can't we just worship God and Baal both? Isn't that what you call hedging your bets? No. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. 
and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Oh, that makes it look like God cares about orphans and widows, doesn't it? Go to Exodus 23, verse 9. Or maybe we'll start in verse 6 and then keep on to verse 9. So Exodus 23, beginning in verse 6, we read, You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So it's not just the widows and the orphans, but also the strangers. Those that come to when join themselves to the Lord. Yes, Edmund. I happen to have been um, looking at those passages, widows and orphans and strangers and what have you, and I was struck very much by, it doesn't uh, occur to us, but how incredibly alien that is in the, all the countries around them the, you know, the king didn't have a responsibility for the poor or the orphans or that sort of It turns the whole thing of how the ancient world understood kingship upside down. The king is responsible and he will be judged by the most vulnerable. In it. And that is so contrary to anywhere else that you see. It's absolutely unique. There's nothing that comes anywhere close to it. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. Verses 17 to 18. You shall not pervert justice to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Remember in the book of Ruth, how Boaz tells his men that are harvesting his fields, hey, drop some for, for the lady coming back there. So she can take some back to her widowed mother-in-law. Verse 20, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Did God mean it? You know he did. So let's go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is commanded to go to the gate. 
Which gate? Not to the gate of the city, but to the gate of the Lord's house. Of those who still come up to the house of the Lord to pray for his blessings and his divine protections. And to tell them that if they will thoroughly repent, stop their sinning and turn back to God, to love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is where the widows, the orphans, the strangers come in. Yes, they're our neighbors. Verse 7, Then I'll cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. They could never have been exiled from the land had they listened and repented. Now verse 8, it gets even more specific. Behold, what's behold mean? Shut up and listen. This is really important. Do not miss it. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. Whose lying words is he talking about? The false prophets. In Matthew 7, why does Messiah say there are so many people on the broad road leading to destruction? Because they listen to the false prophets, the false teachers. Again and again, Jeremiah is going to warn people, stop listening to the false teachers. Just make a list in your notes. Or say, see notes on Jeremiah 5.13. The Bible addresses false prophets and false teachers and not to listen to them. In Jeremiah 5.31. In Jeremiah 14.14. 14. In Lamentations 2. 14. In Ezekiel 22, 28. Then in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. In Matthew 24, verse 11. In Matthew 24, verse 24. In Mark thirteen twenty two, in Second Peter two verse one, in First John four verse one, and that's not an exhaustive list. That's just the ones that caught my eye. Second Peter two one says, "But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you." who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Why does the New Testament warn us over and over again about false teachers and false doctrines? Because they're out there, they lead us astray. They make us think we're on the road to heaven when we're not. Can you think of any more destructive heresy 
than to say when the Lord said not a single mark or a single letter will pass from the law, the Torah, until heaven and earth pass away. And when he said that, it wasn't true. If it wasn't true, what does Deuteronomy 18 say about a prophet of the Lord? What portion of his words come true? 100%. So what if he said this and then it doesn't come to pass? So what? It means he's a false prophet. It means he's not the Messiah. Is that a destructive heresy? Deuteronomy 18 talks about the test. Yeah, go ahead. But he also says the prophet is coming. That's Messiah. If a prophet must be 100% right, the prophet must be 100% right. Yeah, he can't say not the single letter, a piece of a letter will pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away and then say, oh, but I'm abolishing all God's commandments, by the way. He can't say I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and be crucified on Friday and raised on Sunday morning. How many prophecies does he have to get wrong? Just one. Which means people have been taught wrong and believe what they've been taught. How many times have you heard people say, my pastor would not lie to me. He would not teach me wrong. He may not think he's wrong. Yeah. Yep, the colleges teach it. And more importantly, most pastors come under a denomination which says you must teach the following or lose your license and your job. At any rate, back to Jeremiah 7, to happier times. Maybe. Verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. What does that mean we are delivered to do all these abominations? Meaning we're told it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We're not under law. We're under grace. Yeah. Wow. This is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Yeah, it reads a lot like Romans, and well, we've got some Romans readings coming up, don't we? We know in the book of Romans it talks about how the people who are supposed to teach the law are they're saying one thing, but then doing something. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul rebukes the Jewish teachers who are teaching people not to break the law, but breaking it themselves. Oh, do as I say, not as I do? Well, that doesn't fly before the Lord does it. But turn to the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2. And then we want to talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and to see it's the same doctrine as the false prophets were teaching in Jeremiah's day. And it's the same thing the false teachers are teaching today. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He hates what? The deeds of the Nicolaitans. Then if you go to verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. He hates their doctrine and the works that come out of their doctrine. Now I'm going to read from a handout titled Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans were one of the heretical sects that plagued the churches at Ephesus and at Pergamum, according to Revelation 2, verses 6 and 15. Irenaeus, do you know who Irenaeus was? Early church father who learned from John, right? Identifies them as followers of Nicholas, one of the seven chosen in Acts 6. Let's go back to Acts 6. Nicholas was not born Jewish. Nicholas was a proselyte. Acts chapter 6. Let's start in verse 1 for context. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying... There rose a complaint against the Hebrews, that's the Hebrew-speaking Jews, referring to the apostles, by the Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Did the Hebrew-speaking Jews like the Greek-speaking Jews? No, there was great animosity, because the Greek-speaking Jews were those that at the time of Hanukkah, turned away from God and embraced Greek language and culture to save their mortal lives. Verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. Which twelve? We're talking about the apostles. They're the Hellenists. No, they're the Hebraists, the Hebrew-speaking Jews. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Proselyte means a Gentile who converted to Judaism. And then, apparently, got saved. But as we learn later, maybe not so much. But he's the one, according to Irenaeus, after whom the Nicolaitans are named. And Irenaeus identifies them as followers of Nicholas, one of the seven chosen Acts 6, and as men who, quote, lead lives of unrestrained indulgence, unquote which means sinning all they want to. He also relates them to Gnosticism. John the disciple of the Lord preaches his faith, the deity of Messiah, and seeks by the proclamation of the gospel to remove that error, which by Corinthus had been disseminated among men, and a long time previously by those termed Nicolaitans, who were an offset of that knowledge falsely so called, that he might confound them and persuade them that there is but one God, made all things by his word. In other words, Nicholas, the proselyte, comes out of Gnosticism. 
to Judaism and then to apparently the faith. Can you see how I'd be a little confused? The doctrine of the Nicolaitans appears to have been a form of antinomianism, which makes the fatal mistake that man can freely partake in sin because the law of God is no longer binding. It held the truth on the gratuitous reckoning of righteousness, but supposed that a more intellectual belief in this truth had a saving power. In other words, simply believe and live in sin, and you're okay with God. That was the error in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. That was the error in the Nicolaitans. And that's the same error that's being preached today. That the law of God no longer applies. We're free to sin. Messiah said is free from the law so that we could live in sin. Hmm. Yes. All you have to do is do a simple Google search. Does the law apply? Does Torah apply? Any of those terms? And, and you know, what two-thirds of the, maybe even three-fourths of the What two-thirds or three-fourths of the results? Always show how much of the law do you need. It's always like always a, show. It's always a loophole. Like how much loophole. Have, how much do we have to keep in order to be good with God? Let's divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial and, and so, throw out two-thirds. And so people don't yep. have to look at it like it's a joy to it's always, it's so burdensome. How much of it do we really need to keep? Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to Jeremiah. Because that was my point. Is That's the teaching that is causing the Jewish people in Jerusalem and in the temple not to repent. They're being taught repentance is not necessary. You believe there's a God in heaven, that's enough. Oh, my, my, my. Also, the people were taught a false perception of God. Yep, they were taught a false perception of God. Like, there's, like, hard for me to explain, but, like, they were taught about God, but not who God really was. They were taught about God, but not who God really was. He's like Santa Claus or an ATM machine, right? You just go in and get whatever you want and then ignore him the rest of the time. I will be whom I'll be, meaning what? Oh, if you're his child, he's a wonderful father. And if you're an enemy, he's a wrathful judge. Let me read a comment from my Tanakh. I thought it was so insightful. Quote, Jeremiah railed against a common human failing. People often act as if they can commit every manner of sin, but expect divine help because they mouth empty commitments to their faith, end quote. Is that not exactly what we find in the world today? Yeah, that's in my Tanakh down in the comments. Let's turn also to the book of Romans. Romans. Daniel mentioned chapter 2, so let's look at the words that he was referring to. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Let 
Romans chapter 2, verse, oops, I got two comments out here, or chats, or questions, let's see. No, um, it means in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, that the apostles were busy teaching the word of God. And that they didn't want to leave preaching the word of God and bringing people to salvation to wait on tables for the widows. Okay, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew. The word Jew means one who worships the true and living God. And rest on the law. And make your boast in God and know his will. And approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. How do you learn the things that are excellent? They're instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. The blind referring to the Gentiles who don't know the law. A light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher of babes. Having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another do not teach yourself. You preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? You say, do not commit adultery, or do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? Do you make your boast in the law, but do you dishonor God through breaking the law? In other words, if we teach people that they should be keeping the commandments of God, what should we be doing? We should be keeping the commandments of God. What does it say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19? Those who do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Not just those who teach them. Those who do and teach them. And then turn to Romans chapter 6. I've heard all my life Paul tells us to quit following those commandments. But what is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness, anomia, ah, that which is contrary to nomos, the law of God. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Majorito. Certainly not. In the King James, God forbid. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Verses 1 and 2 mean what? Give me one word. Repent. Was that the message of Jeremiah? Yes. That was the message of Paul. That was the message of Messiah. That was the message of Peter and John, etc. So let's do it. Let's go back to verse 11 of Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, 11. Makes me want to slurpy, but that's wrong somehow. Verse 7. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes. Well, I remember once when Messiah drove the money changers and the sellers from the temple, calling them what? My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Oh, what's happened before will happen again. Yeah, one's about Sabbath, one's about keeping Torah. So it's this house, talking about the temple. How's the temple called the house? Who resides there? The Lord does. God does. The word bait in Hebrew can mean a house, the synagogue, or the temple. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Meaning, 
Is that all you think of it? I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. What do you know? In this Bible, even say, go look at Matthew 21. Hmm. Matthew 21, verse 13. After driving out those who bought and sold in the temple and the tables and the money changing to see those who sold doves, Messiah says them what? It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Why would Messiah quote from the Old Testament if the Old Testament is no longer relevant? He wouldn't, would he? So by quoting from it, what does he say? It is still relevant. Go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Verse 17. Then they came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? I'm not in the right place, am I? Oh. Verse 17, not 27. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made a den of thieves. Where is it written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? That's Isaiah 56. It says, Any Gentiles who want to come into the kingdom will keep Shabbat and hold fast to my covenant. Now to Luke 19. The yeah, man-made rules. That's why we have Acts chapter 10. It has nothing to do with eating unkosher hot dogs. Luke 19. Why do places like Popeye's chicken cook the chicken and pork? Just make sure God's people don't come Luke 19, verse 46. Places cook the biscuits and the Lord. Yeah, many of them. Mm -hmm. Eat at home. <laughs> yeah. McDonald's used to actually mix pork, pork grease in the french fries, mash them out, and then form french fries. And when you ordered french fries, those frozen things went into the grease. They weren't potatoes, they were potatoes mixed with pork. And blood. Grease. And blood. And blood. Good. Yeah. Luke nineteen forty six. It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it in a thieves. It's important enough it made it in a Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's quoting from Jeremiah chapter seven. Luke chapter nineteen, verse forty six. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of you. Don't mean to. When he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, which is all, all about repent before it's too late, why do you think he quotes from there? What's the very first thing Messiah taught? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they said, no, thank you. That's exactly right. The spiritual state of Jerusalem at the time of Messiah was about the same as it was in the book of Jeremiah. 
And how is it today? And isn't it a shame there's not a verse in Psalm 119 that says, It's time for you to act, act, O Lord, because they have treated your law as void. Paul in Romans 3.31 says, What? Does our faith make the law void? Majinoito. God forbid. Taint so. So back to Jeremiah chapter 7. That was verse 11, so this must be verse 12. But now go to my place, which was in Shiloh. Shiloh is about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. That's where the tabernacle sat for the longest time. It's verse 12. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Uh oh. We better go look, huh? In other words, the false prophets are saying God will not destroy Judah or Jerusalem because God's temple is here. And God says, go back and look at what happened to Shiloh. So let's do this. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Suddenly, rats and hemorrhoids come to mind, but let's see why. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the word of Samuel, Shmuel, came to all Israel. Shmuel means what? What's that? God will hear. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, not Scrooge, that was in the play by Dickens. And the Philistines camped at Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when he joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. When the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Uh Uh-oh. They're not trusting in God. They're trusting in the box. Not so much an idol as, well, they're making an idol, aren't they? So the people went to Shiloh. And remember in Jeremiah's day, they're trusting in the temple, not in God. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring up from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. 
So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So not only did God allow Israel to be defeated and Shiloh to be destroyed, but he allowed the Ark of the Covenant that they put their faith in to be captured and taken back to the camp of the Philistines. So God is saying through Jeremiah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you're trusting in this physical structure. But you're not worshiping me. You think this physical thing is going to deliver you. Go read. Did the Ark of the Covenant deliver them from the Philistines? No. Why? Because God was not with the Ark. Will God be in the temple when the Babylonians attack? The answer is no. Without God's physical presence, what is the temple? It's a bunch of stones, wood, and gold. That's it. So look at Psalm 78. The key verse is 60, but I want to look at verses 56 to 64. So go to Psalm 78 and start in verse 56. I see a chat out there. Let me check it. It says, need to correct something about Popeye's fried chicken. The chicken is fried in a blend of canola and soybean oils, and the biscuits are lard-free. That's not true here in Georgia. I've asked both the Popeye's chicken places here, and they both say, nope, it's full of lard. So Paul's down in Mississippi. So hopefully in Mississippi they have learned better. But here in Georgia, it's all lard. Psalm 78. Trust me, I was brokenhearted. Psalm 78, start in verse 56. I love biscuits and gravy, and you can't get it around here hardly. All pigified. Psalm 78, verse 60. We'll start in 56. 60 is a key verse. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. What do they mean by his testimonies? His commandments. But turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. That's where they worshipped the pagan idols. And moved him to jealousy with their carved images. Those are the idols. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. The tent he had placed among men. What's it mean? He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. He left there. So when they carried that ark into the battle with the Philistines, God was not there. Then they just had a box. Verse 61 says, And delivered his strength into captivity. Referring to the ark itself going into captivity. And his glory into the enemy's hands. He also gave his people over to the sword. That's those tens of thousands who died. And was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. That's because the bridegrooms died in the battle. Their priests fell by the sword. We saw Phineas, etc. And their widows made no lamentation. I'm on my. 
Let's go back to Jeremiah. Verse 13. It wouldn't hurt so much if we couldn't look around us and see the same thing happening today. Do we expect God to judge us differently because he likes us better? We should follow him with all our heart. And if we don't, we should expect judgment. Doesn't the scripture say judgment begins at the house of God? So verse 13 of Jeremiah 7, And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord. What does he mean by works? He's talking about their sins, what they have done. They broke God's commandments. If you look in the book of Revelation chapter 22, let's go up to Revelation 22. Come judgment day, we get judged upon our works. Revelation 22, 12. What color are the words in your Bible? They are red. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through this gates into the city. What does that have to do with the word work? That's what he means. Did you keep the commandments or didn't you? Verse 15, are those who did not. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. So back to Jeremiah 7.13. And now because you've done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. What does he mean? I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking. All the prophets he sent. Prophet after prophet after prophet. You've got your list of kings and prophets. How many prophets are prophesying at the same time? Four or five? That's just the major ones. That's just the major ones. And everyone crying out for repentance so that you can avoid judgment. If people go on, nope, I like my sin. So prophets have been proclaiming repentance for decades. Decades. God has given them opportunity after opportunity to repent. And turn to the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And what do you see over and over in Revelation 2? Yeah. Revelation 2 verse 5. He's speaking to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works for us. I'll come to you quickly and remove your lamps in from his place unless you repent. Is this written to the pastor of the church? Yes. Is it to be read by everybody in the church? Yes. How could God call on a church to repent? Aren't we all perfect? Far from it. Uh huh. Verse 16. After saying, Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, he says, Repent or else. Mm -hmm. 
Repent was enough when he answered else. What does that mean? Verse 22, unless they repented their deeds. How many times does he tell these churches to repent? Because they're being led astray into false doctrines. Repent, come back to the commandments of God. In Mark 7 and Matthew 15, God says, if your worship is based upon the commandments of men, what is your doctrine to God? Nothing. Nothing. It's empty. It's in vain. So what should your doctrine be based upon? That's 2 Timothy 3.16, upon every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's what doctrine should be based upon. You guys are saying, I get it, I get it, come on. Okay, so let's get back to Jeremiah 7. And then let's weep for a minute over the end of verse 13, but you did not answer. Therefore, uh-oh. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust. They're not trusting in God. They're trusting in the building. And to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, which means the temple will be destroyed. And its contents will be taken into captivity, just like the Ark of the Covenant was taken into captivity when Shiloh was destroyed. Do you think God meant it? Well, we know it was fulfilled, literally. They destroyed it brick by brick, stone by stone, piece of gold by piece of gold. And took all those goblets from the house of the Lord. And in Daniel chapter 5, what did the king do? Toasted the pagan gods with the vessels taken from the temple of the Lord our God. And what did God write on the wall? Mine, mine, teko you farsen. Which literally means, you're, you're dead. You're toast. Yeah. Did he mean it? Yeah, he toasted them that night. So verse 14, I will do to this temple, this house, what I did to Shiloh. Verse 15, and I will cast you out of my sight. That means into captivity or dead. And, and as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. What's Ephraim? The northern king of Israel that went into captivity in 722 and hasn't been heard from since. Wait. Yes, sir. Quick question. I, we keep talking about Shiloh. Uh, Genesis 49.10. Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver between his feet, until Shiloh come. Right. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that talks about Messiah. Am I correct? Right. In Genesis 49, it's talking about Messiah. Shiloh comes from the word Shaliach, the sent one. So until the sent one comes. Thank you. Yep. So back to Jeremiah chapter 7. We have just a few minutes left. Verse 15. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. It's just verses 9 to 12. That's all it takes is verses 9 to 12. 2 Kings 18, verse 9. Are we there? 
It says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Hala by the harbor, by the Habor, sorry, the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded them, and they would neither hear nor do them. And that's it. That's what's written about. There goes the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity, not to be heard from again until Messiah returns. Four verses. You would almost think that the people said, whatever is good is evil, whatever is black is white, and we're going to follow our own ways which we see as good, not, not the ways that Moses taught us, which we see as bad. And each man did what was right in his own eyes. Yep. And they called evil good and good evil. And that, I mean, that's like today with the abortion rights and all this stuff that, and the liberal things. Yep. It's for moral people, we simply can't understand how they can come up with their conclusions. It's you know, I can't think like that. Right. Or it's okay to kill somebody. I can't go there. Right. They do. Nope. Yep. So let's go back to Jeremiah 7, verse 16. I, I don't know if I can do this without weeping. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or a prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. That's pretty tough. Moses kept praying for the children of Israel, intervening for him, and God says, Jeremiah, don't you do it. I won't even hear it. What does that tell you about how far the people have gone into sin and refusing back. to repent? They're not coming back. So therefore, don't pray for them because you're just wasting your breath. Yep. Fortunately, that do not pray for this people, that's a temporary commandment. Not a permanent one. Well, and you know in Hebrew there are two different ways of yes. writing the commandments. Permanent or temporary. This is temporary. But if they repent, certainly you should pray for them. Right. But God knows they're not going to repent. Yeah. Proverbs 28.9 says, If you turn your ear away from hearing the law, even your prayer is an abomination. So if the children of Israel cried out to God, is he going to hear them? No. Jeremiah, on the other hand, is a righteous man. But God says, don't you pray for him. I won't hear it. Because they have made their choice. And their choice was to turn their backs on God. And of course, adding notes to Proverbs 28, 9, John chapter 9, verse 31, which is the New Testament equivalent, which says we know that God will not hear sinners. And that brings us to the end of our time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 17. <laughs>